0: Lock Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Laura Mice, Pediatric Speech Language Pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk. This is the third time that I tried to do this show about establishing speech treatment plans for children with significant motor build the laser disorders, and I am so excited that it looks like it might really happen today. Woohoo, I guess the planet's took totally the line and we can do this show, and I'm so excited, too, that our special guest is Lauren Thompson, physical therapist. Welcome, Lauren.
1: Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm so excited that you agreed to be with me on the show, and maybe that's why I haven't had to do this show yet, is because it was meant for me, to be for you to be here with us And tell us and be our resident motor delay slash disorder expert and talk us through how we can uh, look at motor skills, how we can incorporate some treatment strategies into our treatment plans as speech-language pathologists and developmental interventionists and special instructors or moms and dads at home. And so, again, I'm so happy that you agreed uh, to be part of the show today.
1: Well, I'm really excited to be here and contribute today.
0: Oh, thank you. Now, tell us about yourself. I usually, when I have a guest on, I try to kind of, I don't know if anybody cares about this but me, but I always try to say (laughs) how we kind of met and how we know each other. And I remember working with you a long time ago with a little guy, but we haven't shared that many children and so I think our relationship really developed uh, because we know the same people and have the same friends, and we really got to be friends kind of on Facebook.
1: I would agree with that, and I think that um, we just started to establish more of a professional relationship because of that.
0: I think so too. So. Um, that's how we know each other, and how we, but I know that you're a great therapist and have a super reputation here in our little part of the world. Uh, share with our listeners how long you've been a PT and kind of your background so they'll get to know a little bit about you before we get started.
1: Sure. I've been a PT for about 14 years, and the first year and a half I worked in acute care in a hospital, the whole time trying to get a job in pediatrics, knowing that was what I wanted to do. Yeah. And since then, I have been working in early intervention in Kentucky, and I do both the primary level evaluations here. Those are the evaluations we use to help determine eligibility for children in early intervention. And then I also do direct treatment.
0: That's great. And you also have a little clinic. so that you see I have some a little children. clinic. Yeah. <laughs> see some even beyond three. So even though your primary gig is birth to three, you still see older ones, Uh, when you all work that out, right?
1: Absolutely. And I also have three children of my own, ages nine, five, and six months. So I'm around kids all the time.
0: You are. You have a little, little cutie pie of a little girl. And I'm so glad I've gotten to meet her and kind of get to know her, too. She is precious. So you're still kind of doing the new mommy thing and the seasoned mommy thing with that range there with a nine-year-old and a newborn. Yes. (laughs) All right. Let's go ahead and get straight to our question, and this is from a speech pathologist named Carrie, and I believe Carrie's from Michigan. She sent me this question so long ago that I don't even know if I remember where she lives anymore, but she sent me a question, and it's one that I think lots of speech pathologists have and that we kind of struggle with, and there are so many answers that I want to be sure to get to today for her, Um, and so many layers of her Question: Not only with how she should treat this little girl, but all the other recommendations that we're going to make for her for uh, assisting this little girl, her little parents in making sure that they address all of her needs. So I'm just going to read that question and then we'll get started from there. First she tells me that she uh, came to my conference in Chicago and so she felt like she uh, really wanted to bounce this idea off someone uh, else. And she says, I'm writing because I recently evaluated a two-year-old little girl with CP and that means cerebral palsy. For those of you who are parents and might be unfamiliar with that terminology. And she says, I would love some ideas or suggested resources. She's coming to see me once per week and is showing some really nice interaction skills with smiles, eye contact, and vocalizations. I'm so proud of her, she says. We've done quite a few of your games from Teach Me to Play with You, and that's a a book that I have written, and it's about getting social interaction going with children. And she says she is actually consistently vocalizing during the Row, Row, Row Your Boat song when she's prompted with the second verse of that song. She says the problem is that her motor skills are obviously so, so limited. She really works so hard to hit or grab objects to lift her arms and to come to midline. And so when we hear that a two-year-old is having difficulty with that, what's your impression of that clinically, Lauren, as far as her severity?
1: Um, that she is pretty involved, that she's probably got some muscle involvement, um, whether it be some tone issues or some strength issues or endurance or balance, it's definitely something that clinically we wanna make sure we address to help her with her language skills.
0: Absolutely, and so when we are looking at a child who has difficulty grabbing objects, lifting her arms and coming to midline, we can make some assumptions about where she's functioning developmentally. And so for a child who's having difficulty with that, Where, and again, I hate to put you on the spot like this, but goodness knows anybody who ever comes on the show is on the spot. So (laughs) where where would you say she is developmentally like an age range for a child who's really struggling to kind of do those things?
1: Um, I would probably put her at about a six-month level in terms of her upper body skills.
0: Right. And so looking at that, and again, this is mostly for our parents and audience, we know that a two-year-old the things that they should be doing, they should be walking, should be running, should be climbing, and so because of that disparity of where her skills are, where she's currently functioning, just from this uh, really uh, functional description, we know that this little girl is is pretty involved and pretty uh, affected in the area of being able to use her body to do things that. Uh, developing toddler would do. So that's a pretty general statement, but it's one that we make with some clinical confidence because we've seen lots of kids like her, right? Absolutely. Okay. So then she goes on to say, we play using a supported chair, which was recommended by an OT at my clinic, or... With her back on the floor, if Mom and I are not swinging or pulling her in a sheet, so she's already told us here <laughs> um, that she's trying to accommodate and trying to do some positioning things with her, and she's telling us that she's also trying to move her uh, and do some sensory kinds of input things with swinging or pulling her in the sheet. Too. She goes on to say. She's supposed to be receiving OT and PT through the Early Intervention Program up here in Michigan. So, yeah, she is from Michigan. For a variety of reasons, she hasn't actually had therapy since November, and she's only had a developmental therapist coming to her home once a week to provide all the therapies. So this speech pathologist is not part – it doesn't seem like to me that she's part of that early intervention system. This is just a service that her parents are using excuse me, in addition to the developmental therapy that she's getting weekly at home. And so she says, so there's nobody for me to truly consult with regarding her motor skills. And she says, do you have any go-to books or resources for working with this population? And can you give me any other suggestions or helpful hints? Thanks so much for your time. And, again, she's pretty complimentary about um, me being able to help her there. So, That's where we are. We've got a little girl with cerebral palsy, two, who sounds like she's functioning right at perhaps that six-month range. Very limited motor skills. So the problem that lots of speech pathologists have when they work with a kid like this is they're thinking, oh, no, none of my regular stuff is going to work because I have all these toys that, I would think would be appropriate for her, but because she's not able to use and move her body in the way that she, we would expect, or maybe even in the way if a, if a speech pathologist or developmental <laughs> therapist hasn't worked with lots of children with motor delays, this can, this can be um, a more difficult kid to treat in terms of where she would begin working with her. And again, looking at her developmental level from a speech language perspective, she also has huge delays uh, with her speech-language skills, too. She's not really consistently vocalizing unless it's in the context of this little social game. And, again, the therapist is at a real loss for what kinds of things she can do. So that's what we're going to help her with this whole hour is talking her through this, these like, potential ideas and things that we would do uh, for a kid like this on our caseload. Before we do that, though, let's back way up. And for our listeners who are parents, and, again, maybe therapists who haven't had uh, as much experience, let's just start, Lauren, by talking about motor skill differences in general. And she says this little girl has a diagnosis of cerebral palsy. And even though one kid, we could have ten different kids in front of us with a of cerebral palsy, and they may look different we may have 10 different kind of yeah presentations and so there's so many types of uh, cerebral palsy so why don't you just give us in a nutshell kind of a little tutorial on muscle tone differences with kids kids high tone low tone all that pt stuff that you people say all the time give us give us a little refresher course on that
1: Okay, well, I think the first thing is with cerebral palsy, like you said, with ten different kids with the same exact diagnosis, they can look completely different. And I I think the important things are to remember that it's an injury that happens before, after, or during birth. And it's it's permanent damage to the brain, but it's not progressive damage. So wherever the injury is, you can see it on an MRI or on a CAT scan, and you can identify where it is, but it's not going to get any worse. Right. Um, it can affect their fine motor skills, their gross motor skills, their oral motor skills, their language. So it can be a global involvement or it can have just one, one piece of that. Right.
0: Um,
1: and, you know, I think the other thing to remember is it can affect their upper body, their lower body, the left side of the body, their right side of the body. So all that needs to be delineated out when you're working with the child so that you kind of know where you're starting from with that very, very generic diagnosis of cerebral palsy.
0: Right. And it doesn't sound like the speech pathologist has gotten to connect even with a PT who did her original assessment because she hasn't provided any more specific information. So, again, that may have happened. She may have just seen a report, but she really probably doesn't even have good information just from a professional standpoint about what her limitations are beyond kind of what she can see. Is that Uh, that how you read that too?
1: Yes, I would agree with that.
0: So I think our very first recommendation to her would be call the PT who did the eval or at least get your hands on some kind of report so that you can see what a motor skills expert person says what her areas of involvement
1: are. Absolutely. I think that's really important so that you can look at, a real objective report on what the PT or the OT is seeing in terms of their functional abilities.
0: I think so, too. All right, so talk to us, and we're talking about this little girl, but let I keep getting specific when I mean to be general. If we are looking at kids, and, again, you've already told us there can be a real variety of presentations, talk to us about some really basic differences between uh, with muscle tone. What kinds of things do we see in kids with, with cerebral palsy?
1: Sure. Well, I think, you know, there's a couple different kinds of muscle tone. And muscle tone is the resistance to, resistance to stretch that a muscle has and the joint has. It doesn't have anything to do with strength. And I think that's really important to know that those are two completely different things.
0: And we'll get to that and in a minute because I know every speech pathologist in the world screws that up all the time when we're trying to think <laughs> about it and explain to parents. So hold that thought. But just talk to us kind of about low tone, high tone, how kids look, the kind of the differences, what we see as therapists or as parents.
1: Sure. A child with low tone is often described as a child that's floppy
0: or Mm -hmm.
1: um, like a doll or a sack of potatoes when you're holding them. They just don't really help very much. Um, They're the child that when they're sitting, they may sit in that slumped sitting posture. They look like they're sitting on their tailbones.
0: -hmm. Or they might
1: sit with their legs straight out and really wide base of support because they just Uh don't have good support to their muscles and joints.
0: Right. So even after they learn to sit, there are still some differences that you can see. And I've seen two year olds too that are walking, but we still see those more subtle signs of underlying low muscle tone. And so those wouldn't be the kids that are maybe at the extreme. But they're still there, and those are the kids that still look a little like they're slouching or they lean into you when you're sitting behind
1: them. Absolutely. Or when they're walking, they'd they'd be the kids that would still keep that wide base of support. They still Mm -hmm. look like a new walker, even if they've been walking for a year or longer.
0: Okay, so that's something a speech pathologist can really hang on to. If you're seeing a kid that looks like that and we say to mom, gosh, did she just start walking? And mom says, no, she's been walking for nine months now. We should automatically start to think, you know, let me look and see
1: if I have the signs and symptoms of low muscle time here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, Children with low tone are the kids that when you pick them up, their shoulders just kind of come along for the ride. They just hike them Uh up and just let you pick them up.
0: They don't Uh resist
1: you at all. Right.
0: Sometimes Um, those low-tone kids feel heavier to me, though.
1: Absolutely, because they're not providing you any help at all. They're more than willing to just let you do all the work. Right, right.
0: And it feels like sometimes, and I've had moms say this to me, she just goes limp when I pick her up, and they think that that's something that the child is purposefully choosing to do, and that's not the case at all.
1: That's right. That's They just can't get their muscles to work fast enough to be able to support them when you pick them up. Right.
0: Okay. Children with other, low tone, go ahead. No, you go ahead. you do great.
1: <laughs> Children with low tone are also the kids that you may see, they do things with a lot of momentum. They're kind of sitting on the ground and then they pop up into standing. They have a lot of difficulty with what therapists like to call the graded movements. They're kind of the in-between movements that kids uh-huh. do. It's, So not just sitting or standing, but how about squatting or how about sitting in a little bit different position. Kids with low tone have a hard time with those things.
0: Okay. Those are good things for us to look for.
1: And then there are kids that when they're standing, you may see that they um, really roll in at their ankles or they have flat feet. And Mm -hmm. that's something that a parent will observe or they may tell you, a parent may tell you they can't find shoes to fit them because their feet are still so wide. Uh-huh. And as a therapist, you might you can look at them walking, and you'll see their little ankles rolling in when they're walking. That may or may not be an indication of low tone, but it's definitely an indicator to maybe take a closer look.
0: Okay. And I love that you're breaking this down with something that speech pathologists may not have even thought that they, you know, they, a lot. I think a lot of times we think, that's out of the scope of my practice. I don't really have to pay attention to how a kid walks. And it's not that we're really diagnosing or anything beyond. That just gives us a picture into what this whole kid is struggling with. And so, again, I think it just gives us more and more information about um, a reason for their delays or what kinds of recommendations that we should be making to their parents so that they can uh, seek services beyond our own.
1: Yes. And then the child with the high tone is a child that parents will often describe as stiff mm-hmm. or resistant. They're they're not the snugglers. These are the kids that when you hold them, they kind of arch their back and they just uh-huh. never really cuddle in.
0: I've seen kids like that too, and treated kids like that. And again, um, I th- do. You think low tone kids are more common or high tone kids are more common?
1: I think in my practice, I would say the lower tone kids are more common. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I I think that certainly has been my um experience as well. I okay, think so the lower we,
1: tone comes along with a lot of diagnoses or just it's just the way the kid is built. The high tone okay. tends to be a result of some sort of injury or syndrome, typically. Okay. Okay. So and talk to
0: us about other diagnoses that a child might have beyond CP and I've talked about this a lot on the show. Recently, some doctors don't even really say cerebral palsy anymore. They just go with a hypotonia diagnosis or a hypertonia diagnosis, and a parent might not even think that that's related to or the same as a CP diagnosis. I don't know if you've run across that before.
1: I have because I think there's um, more of a hesitation to diagnose children with CP at a younger
0: age. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh And so I think doctors are using those hypotonia or hypertonia diagnoses as a descriptor earlier on until maybe the child is two or three and they can get that true diagnosis.
0: Okay. So you think that's what's happening. They're just trying to call it what it is without giving a specific or more global diagnosis. They're just trying to describe the muscle tone.
1: Yes, I think so.
0: And I think what happens, though, is it confuses the heck out of parents, don't you?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, really or the doctor throws out the big the big words and doesn't explain what those words mean at all to the family. And
0: then, Yeah, and then they have to go home and Google it, and they still yes. may not even know how to spell it. <laughs> and they're <laughs> really kind of struggling to get information that's where we as early interventionists really are so important to a family when they're when they're saying these kinds of things well the doctor says she has hypotonia you know we really don't need to be chickens and opt out of those conversations with moms and dads. We need to sit there and really help them provide information so and provide that information so they can wrap their brains around what's really going on with the kid. And, and frankly, we have more time than a lot of specialists do. And we see these families week after week after week. And so we really need to be sure that we are talking about these things and that we're providing Uh, information that's not as confusing and that's easier for parents, again, to understand. And so that's why I'm so glad you're kind of talking with us about it and explaining. And, again, if you're a speech pathologist or developmental interventionist and this is not your area of expertise and forte, don't shy away from it. Listen to the things that Lauren is telling you because these are the kinds of things, this is the, the exact way you say it to parents and the kinds of things that you can talk about and, again, um, it would be a way to share information. So, all right, back to high-tone kids. What are some other things that we can look for or that might let us know that that tone is involved with, with that kind of kid too?
1: Okay, well, I think one of the things that you'll see with a higher-tone child is that they keep their sometimes they keep their hands fisted for a longer period of time. Newborn babies naturally do that. But right. by the time they're three or four months old, those hands should be open all the time. And the kids with a higher tone have a harder time opening their hands up. So if you're seeing a a fisted hand in a baby that's over four months old that you can't get to open, you know, that's an indicator to take a closer look.
0: Okay. All right. That sounds good. What are some things, some more subtle signs of high tone that we might see, say, in an older toddler?
1: Um, In an older toddler, if they're walking, you may see that they – tend to cross their legs a little bit when they walk. We call that scissor Mm -hmm. walking or a scissor gait, but they're just having trouble keeping their feet apart. So they they might be the clumsy kid that you're seeing, Mm -hmm. but they're falling Mm -hmm. all the time. And another thing you might see is that they're the kids that the parents report that they never wanted to crawl or they never wanted to sit, they just wanted to stand right away, and they thought they'd Uh be an early walker. Because they're using all the muscles on the back of their body all the time. And what that does is it pushes you right into a standing position.
0: I have a family right now. They're family friends. And I'm not really worried about this little guy yet, but he's kind of doing some of those things. He's not really wanting to sit and his mom will say, when – you know, to get him to try to want to sit, I really kind of have to push his legs down. You know, I have to get I have to get his feet in front of him so that I can scoot him backwards so that he's going to sit down on the floor. And a lot of parents will say, he's so strong, he just seems so strong. And they're really not recognizing that as maybe a, a tone difference.
1: Absolutely. You know, there's a reason that the milestones in any area happen in the order that they happen. And so when they're not happening the way that we think that they should, you know, it's a reason to take a closer look. And kids that are four months old shouldn't want to stand and walk all the time. They should be wanting to do some other things.
0: So as a therapist, what would you say to that mom? Or what would you say to a a therapist, say a speech pathologist or developmental therapist, who's seeing this kind of thing with the baby? What what would you recommend? You would say just what you did about the order so, give us some more words that you would say.
1: Um, I would ask the family if they, um, if the baby had done some of the other things. Like, did the baby ever roll, or did the baby like to be on their belly, or did you know, were they standing up at two months? The second they brought them home from the hospital, is that what they wanted to do? Did they like to stand on their toes? Because that's another indicator that maybe something is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just want to make sure that. When they're rolling, one of the things that kids with higher tone like to do is arch their backs and just kind of Mm -hmm. flip over. And so, you know, that might be something that you can do with the baby, put them on their back or on their belly and kind of see how they use their body. Are they log rolling, as we describe it, or are they doing more of what we call a segmental roll, which means that they initiated with maybe their hips or their arms first instead of just Mm -hmm. everything going over at one time.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. Those are good things to have. The other thing that I want to talk about with low tone and high tone is that you can still be functional and have, um, you know, what I'm trying to say is there's a full range of muscle tone even in the general population. I mean, I know about myself, I'm on the low tone side. I was a girl who, when I was a cheerleader, I did the splits because I had low muscle tone and that's what I could do rather than all that tumbling stuff. So even among the general population, um, there's a big range of muscle tone.
1: Absolutely. And even, even as a therapist, we describe it as normal tone or low normal tone or high normal tone, and then you can go to just low tone or just high tone. So there is a wide continuum of where people's muscle tone can fall and how that impacts them functionally.
0: Right. Right, and so I wanted to kind of be sure and get that out there too. Okay, let's go back. and Do you have anything more that you want to say about those general descriptors about low tone, high tone, that sort of thing, or can we move to the whole strength versus tone issue?
1: Well, the only other thing I want to throw out there, and this might just confuse everybody, is that you can also have fluctuating tone. And these are the children, the description is acetoid, but it just means that the child's tone can sometimes be low and sometimes be high. And when right. that happens, it's a definite result that there's been some sort of injury to their neurological sy- system. And those right. kids are a little bit harder to describe and a little bit harder to play with because you have to accommodate to where they are at that moment in time.
0: Right. Right. And let me tell you, just let me say one other thing about this just from personal experience. I had a little girl that I worked with, and this was, gosh, in the late 90s, and I remember saying to her PT, gosh, I think she, she looks like to me she has high muscle tone. And she said, actually, Laura, she has low muscle tone, but she is trying so hard to compensate for that low tone, that to you she looks like she has high tones, but you've kind of been faked out by that. And that was a real aha moment for me because I didn't learn that in grad school. That was not on my test <laughs> <laughs> that a kid could try to compensate like that. So talk to us about how that kind of thing looks. Sure You've had kids like that, right?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the way I described the low tone kid, they're kind of that all or none movement kid. You know, they're right. doing things using their momentum, and when they use their momentum, they look like they're really strong, and they right. look like they have high tone because they have kicked every muscle into gear to uh, to be able to do something. So right. yes, kids can kids can fool you very easily, and that's why it's and really important to assess their tone versus their strength.
0: Right, and that little girl, and the reason she that I got so faked out by that is because when she would sign, and this is when I first started working with her, and again boy, I know a lot more about this now than I did way back then. And when she would try to sign Lauren, she would just, her whole little body was into it. I mean, she would really, if she were signing more, she would work so hard to get her little arms and her hands right there to midline that to me, she looked rigid. Mm -hmm. And when she tried to sign eat, she would nearly knock herself backwards with her little (laughs) hand to her mouth. Because she was trying so hard. And so, again, to me, not, you know, I had not worked, uh, you know, but had not had the number of children that I have now, you know, or that I had seen, you know, Uber therapists just kind of trying to kind of sort all of this out. What does my textbook knowledge tell me versus how this little girl who's sitting before me on the floor, what is she doing? And, again, I'm so glad that therapist explained it to me that way. And it wasn't in an insulting way or anything. You know, you idiot, how could you have missed this?
1: Because based
0: (laughs) on what she was doing with me, she really looked that way. So that's why I think it's so important for us to share information as professionals. And if you're a speech person who doesn't have that much experience with uh, kids with with motor issues, you really need to be on the phone and having real-life conversations with the PTs and the OTs that are working with these kids so that you can get uh, that information that you may not be able to glean from a report.
1: Absolutely. I think you definitely need to be talking to the team of therapists so that you can figure out how the child is really using their body.
0: Right, exactly, and get some education on that stuff if it it hasn't come together in our minds yet. All right, now talk to us about, Strength versus tone. Give us just a really working definition of that so that we can sort that out.
1: Sure. Well, strength is the power that a muscle has. You know, it's, it, strength is determined by how many muscle fibers are in a muscle. And so when you tell it you want it to work, it's able to work. And okay. you can get more muscle fibers and you can improve your strength. With muscle tone, muscle tone doesn't change. And I think that people use the phrase getting toned and that really is confusing because really what they're doing is yeah. getting stronger.
0: And I think we screw that up all the time, even if we're talking about our own bodies, you know, going to the gym or whatever and we don't, we're, we're using these words interchangeably when they're not really interchangeable.
1: Absolutely. And muscle tone is the resistance to stretch that a muscle has. So if you take a little baby and you bend their elbow back and forth, and no matter how fast you go, that elbow is just along for the ride and just moving along. That's probably a lower tone baby. Right. If you go fast and the muscle starts to resist and starts to fight you, that's probably a higher tone baby.
0: Okay, so those are good definitions and good ways to kind of think about that and for parents too. Yeah, and I think strength and tone, and again, we might even misuse those that terminology, Um, even with our our low-tone kids that say we're working on feeding with or we're, um, again, kind of looking at that pre-speech stuff. I used to see these goals written all the time, and now I think a lot of therapists who have more experience have realized that, you know, they don't need to write a goal like we will increase the child's oral muscle tone, (laughs) You know, Absolutely. we really need to be changing that functional outcome and, and looking at what are the what are the real life skills that we would be looking at versus looking at changing that underlying tone since you've already shared that's virtually impossible.
1: Yes. Yes. Muscle tone is you really can't change muscle tone. It's just the way your muscles are built.
0: Okay. All right, I just looked at the time. We've spent thirty minutes doing the background information, so now we're gonna have to pass <laughs> which is what happens every single week, with moving forward to talk about what advice we would give this therapist. Now, I've already responded to her via email when she first wrote me this. And, again, this is now a couple months ago. And my first recommendation to her is something that we've already talked about, and I know you feel this way too. And I've said, you know, please encourage her parents to do whatever they can do to get PT and or OT on an ongoing basis for this little girl because from how she's described her skill level that she is 2 and still having difficulty coming to midline, grabbing objects, still doesn't seem like she lifting her arms I I don't know that she's sitting or not sitting yet. She did she must not be sitting unsupported because she's using a chair to be 2 and not be have accomplished those milestones, she really is to be in PT and or OT.
1: I would totally agree with you. You definitely need a, a therapist of some sort that's been trained. You know, that's our training is motor movements and not only, you know, skill acquisition, but the quality of the skill acquisition and what kids look like. So you definitely need a PT or OT on board, and you also need them to help with any equipment that you're going to need as a therapist to support the child so that they can function at their highest level. Right.
0: And what I always try to tell parents who come to me and they're saying, well, you know, we're trying to have to choose between therapy, or we don't, you know, our insurance is not going to pay for so many visits, and I really want her to talk. So but so we're gonna opt to have speech over everything else right now and what I try to say to parents is her body is not going to allow her to talk yet. (laughs) It's not where it needs to be. So that she is strong enough to be able to do all of those really complex physical processes that are involved in speech. If they seem to want more information, I go on to talk about core strength. And when we talk, the muscles project that air up from our lungs and go over our vocal cords. And then that that air is shaped because it moves through our throat and moves through our mouth. That air is shaped into Sounds by the way that we constrict our articulators, our tongues and our jaws and our cheeks and our lips. And that's how we make certain sounds. But if she doesn't have the core strength to be able to vocalize consistently, she is not developmentally ready to talk. And so I would, I would, I'm never going to tell a parent not to do it speech and I'm never I I cannot say that because as a speech language pathologist, you know, that would be unthinkable for me to be able to <laughs> say that. But I always say we've gotta get her little body ready. And so if a parent is listening to this or as a as a speech pathologist you struggle with that, you absolutely have to have somebody working on that motor development so that she is going to be her body's able; to, She's able to use her body in the right way so that she can um, make all that complex physical stuff happen. And it is absolutely critical that that, that happens before a child would realistically be able to talk. And I always try to tell parents, too, any a kid has a motor tone issue, they're just really, really going to have to work, you know, triple time or quadruple or whatever you know exponential number that we want to use there it's just going to be harder for them to talk because their little bodies are not working in the way um that we need them to do. so I think it's again so important to support bringing in those other therapies so that parents understand um from that perspective that just because you have a speech person on board doesn't mean that you're going to be able to accomplish that for every single child. And I think I would totally answer.
1: agree with you.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so we have to really give parents that information um so that they are able to um make good decisions based on that and know that gosh, i I'm taking her to the speech psychologist every week, it still may that talking may not be a realistic goal yet because of where this child is motor-wise. And, again, I haven't met the little girl that Carrie's talking about, you know, don't know her, but just from what I'm reading about her, she doesn't sound like to me she's anywhere close to being able to talk because her motor skills are so disruptive at this point.
1: I would agree with you. I think that we've got a. it sounds like from the email that Carrie needs to be working with somebody to help support that little girl's core strength so that she can be vocal.
0: Right. And so what are some things, what are some core strength things that you think outside of, we know the first recommendation is get PT and or OT. So outside of that, what are some core, what are some things that parents can do and we as speech pathologists or uh, developmental interventionists can talk to parents about when we're thinking about and talking about core strength?
1: Well, I think the most important thing is that if your goal is language for a child, that you've got to make sure that they are positioned well for that language. Um and for a baby that can't sit, you probably need to support um provide them with lots of external support so that they don't have to think about sitting while they're trying to work on language.
0: Right. And so, and I've had that happen before too, and I've talked to moms and dads about this, and they've said, oh, we don't want to put her in a chair, we don't want to. You know, don't want to have any kind of level of support right here. And I, what I say to them is she's working so hard to figure out where her little body is in space and how she can hold herself up, she can't begin to understand the words I'm saying. She can't begin to try to imitate me vocally or verbally yet because she's working so hard on her little body. And so when we provide that extra support and extra strength, then it is, it gets her in a better position to be able to uh, focus on something else. So that's that's how I like to explain that. And I'll just say for a lot of my little guys who are um, who who have uh, CP and who are walking already and um, still, you know, they're getting a lot of functional skills. I still have a beanbag chair or other little options for us to use in therapy so that when they start to get really, really tired or I see some leaning or see some other signs of um, that they're having to work too hard on their body so that we can offer that kind of support. And so good idea, or bad idea? Okay. I think it's a great
1: idea. Say, oh, I hope you don't say bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> I no, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> And even yeah. in their homes, you know, something as simple as a high chair. Most of the high chairs now come with like a five point harness on them, and that might be where the baby needs to be when you're working on some language things. Right.
0: Right. And a lot of kids, if this has happened, I just plop them up on the couch or put them in a chair, and they're sitting, you know, a big, you know, just chair in the dent, and they're they still are supported, and I'm. It almost makes it even better because instead of me hunching over to get right in their little faces Then they're already supported and propped up on the couch or on a chair, and I'm sitting on the floor. And so it just makes for some nice um, eye contact because I'm right there, or maybe I'm on my knees, and they're sitting supported in the chair on the couch. So that's an idea, too. I think that's a great um,
1: idea.
0: Yeah, that a therapist can use. All right, so we've talked about how important that OTPT referral is. We've talked about positioning as far as. Getting them, getting their little bodies in a better position. What other recommendations would you make from a PT standpoint for this little girl as far as the speech pathologist being able to work with her? And then I'm going to kind of give some really specific treatment recommendations. But are there any other real general things that we haven't talked about that you think would be important?
1: Well, I think it's important to, depending on what her tone is, is that no matter what you're going to do, Um, to work on her language, that you're helping prepare her body for that before you get started. So, you know, it might be something as simple as bouncing them on a little therapy ball to wake up their bodies if they're a little bit low tone, or Mm -hmm. it could be just rocking them back and forth on a therapy ball or in a blanket if they're higher tone, just to relax their bodies so that they're more engaged and not having to think about what their bodies are doing.
0: And I think that this uh speech pathologist is already kind of doing that because she mentioned swinging and pulling her in the sheet, and so she's already kind of addressing her, those preparatory little things, and there are some darling little songs and little games so that you can incorporate that kind of activity into a therapy session. And your primary one of your primary goals is getting the child's body ready to work with you, Uh, but you're also probably targeting social skills during that time. So if you're swinging, you have a little song that goes with it. You even sing as a PT, don't you, Lauren? Don't you don't you put little songs and little re- I <laughs> do.
1: I do, and I actually love using motor-based songs like Wheels on the Bus or Head, Shoulders, Knees, and Toes because it pulls in a lot of their motor skills too.
0: Right, and so when we're doing these kinds of things and we're thinking about getting a kid's body ready, again, that's a perfect time to work in those cute little special games. Um, The other part that I try to do when I'm doing special games, and again, this is kind of beyond the get-her-body-ready part is letting a child have a motor response that's her um, response or her part of the little game. So if Uh, this therapist is swinging or, or pulling or doing something, she could really incorporate a little song or even a little motor movement so that that child indicates, I want you to do this again, or I want you to do more, or whatever it would be, so that we're teaching a child to do her part. Even something as simple as playing getting five with a child like this is important because we're getting, again, getting her little body to move that you're having her use that movement in a really predictable way and in a social way and in a responsive way so that she, again, has to learn that whole, um, the expectation here is for me to do something, you know, to do something to get something. And I think it can start way back with the kid even at this developmental level that we have to um, work that into our treatment plans. Um, one thing that I wanted to be sure to say is that no matter what kind of child that we're working with or what diagnosis that they have and Lauren, this is something I talk about all the time if, if you haven't you're a PT, you don't listen to the show. But if you haven't heard me but you did come to a course that I taught a long time ago, so this won't be this won't be completely foreign to you. But I have this thing that I call the treatment hierarchy. And I say, it doesn't matter what a kid's diagnosis is because we're always going to be looking at, when we're looking at their language, we're going to focus on these specific areas in really uh, a regular, systematic way, regardless of what the diagnosis is. So I want to encourage Carrie. She came to my course in Chicago. She said, so this, this, is, this is more... In her mind, it will be on yours, Lauren, because I think that class is like in January of 2011 or something like that. Um, is that we always start by looking at where a kid is socially, how the child is responding. Is she smiling at me? Is she making eye contact? Do we have joint attention where she can shift her attention from what toy or... Activity that we're playing with back to me, and then back to the toy or to her mom. That she really has that nice uh, ability to include all of us in that activity and not get lost um, in in what she's doing. So or focusing on one little aspect. And so again, it doesn't really matter. Somebody might say to me, "Why would you worry about a kid with CP's social skills? That's not a problem." You don't know that until you really work with an individual child, and so again, it doesn't really matter what the diagnosis is. We always look at a kid in the same way when we're focusing on their communication skills, so we're not going to forget about the hierarchy just because we read a diagnosis on a piece of paper, and that makes sense to you as a physical therapist, right?
1: Absolutely, that makes sense, and I think a lot of times you'll see kids' social skills you know they they can fool you a little bit they can be the kid that you think is smiling and happy and engaged all the time, but they're smiling because they really aren't understanding what's going on or what's being asked of them. So it's very important to assess what their true social skills are before you get going with therapy.
0: Exactly, exactly. And so, again, we're going to fall back to our treatment hierarchy and we're going to start with this kind of kid with social skills. And that's exactly what Carrie has done. She said that she, she gave some great examples of the games that she's using. And, again, for anybody listening, if you need help with that, Teach Me to Play With You is an awesome resource that I've put together for that. And it really teaches you how to – a variety of little games from the simple to more complex, and it helps you uh, break those games down into little bitty baby steps so that a child is – um starting out with just a really simple response which might just be that she maintained attention to you during the game all the way up to doing more complex motor movements like hand motions to a song the kids don't automatically start at that point and it's, that would be hard for this little girl she's not there yet so the therapist has to work her through that process um but still starting back at the very, very beginning. The next area after we look at social skills would be her receptive language skills. And I think this is so hard for speech pathologists and developmental therapists to look at with a kid like this because they're saying, I can't always get her to do something to prove that she knows something. And so two extremes can happen. You can look at a kid like this and just automatically assume that they understand everything, and there's a big movement right now called presume competence, and I think it's so dangerous for early interventionists to do that because when we just assume that a child understands every single thing that we say to them, we might miss big receptive language delays, and I I see that all the time in kids with cerebral palsy because parents just assume that, well, she can't respond, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she doesn't understand everything. And so they don't even address a receptive language piece. They just go straight to expressive language without realizing that there are some pretty big comprehension gaps. Have you seen that before, Lauren? Absolutely.
1: I think that that's very true.
0: And so we know, and you've already talked about how there's going to be a whole range of skills with cerebral palsy. Sometimes we really, and a lot of times, Therapists and parents will just look at a kid who's not talking as strictly having an expressive language issue when there are big, big uh, receptive language gaps that have not been identified. So I want to be sure that we're talking about that and we're thinking about that. Now, that being said, a lot of times I'll get a kid that I think, oh, my goodness. We've gone the other way with this little girl. She's really smart, but nobody's given her credit for anything because she has locked in this little body and hasn't been able to have a consistent motor response. And so we're playing with her on a level cognitively that is well below where she's functioning. And so I think sometimes that we can get either one of those extremes and we need to be really, really careful about making sure that we are... um, getting a good read on where your kid is receptively. And I think it's really hard to push a kid to respond when they have such limited motor skills, but you just got to figure out what a kid can do and then use that to determine what they understand or don't understand. Does that make sense to you, Lauren?
1: It makes perfect sense to me. I think you want to put them in the right position and use what motor skills they have so that you can get a response that is appropriate
0: right and a lot of therapists automatically assume okay well we're going to go straight to using pictures to determine what a child understands or doesn't understand in the situation and i think for us you know if we were working with a preschool population maybe i would buy that but when we're really talking about toddlers and in that birth to three time period I hate going straight to pictures because a lot of our little guys aren't symbolic yet. They really don't understand. They might even like to look at books, and they might really enjoy it when mom sits there and turns the pages, but they haven't really linked that the picture of the baby doll means the same baby doll that you show me. And so, again, I think we can make a real mistake when we jump straight to pictures and straight to systems or the iPad or something like that without really using real life objects to assess what a child can and can't do. And I think it all really does boil down to not being afraid to introduce really simple play routines and really simple um, cause and effect toys and things like that so that we can really determine where a child is functioning cognitively yet adapting and understanding what their motor skill limitations are. And so when we're working with kids like this, what what are some kinds of toys that that you recommend for that? You, and we're, it's probably the same kind of stuff. I start with those kinds of cause and effect toys just to kind of see again and try to tease out where that motor skill um, set is versus where they are functioning um, intellectually or cognitively.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if- a real simple cause and effect toy is a rattle or a maraca or a drumstick. And, you know, it doesn't require a ton of motor control to be able to get that to make a noise and right. give you an idea if the child is understanding what you're asking of them.
0: Right. And I things that I do, I might step up a little bit from that and use something like a really simple jack-in-the-box where mm-hmm. all that they're going to have to do is somehow somehow get their little hand on the button after you've shown them a couple of times what is what happens when you push that there and you're really looking for the child anticipating the response of the toy and not hyper fixating on their movement part of that and so i always this is how i'll describe it to a parent i'll say okay She's stuck on cause. She doesn't understand the effect part. She's not anticipating and looking and remembering and thinking that she's caused this to happen with this toy. So anything like a really simple um, toy where the child activates it so that she's looking uh, again for what happens after she makes that Uh, makes the toy work a really simple racetrack where you might push a lever you know that swirly fisher price racetrack do you have that lauren
1: i do have that toy
0: yeah i think that's a great one for this because they have to push the little lever some kids are going to have a problem with that but i've had some really affected kids uh motor, motor skills you know affected with their motor skills still figure out a way to do it. And when we use these highly enticing toys like this, it motivates them to try a little harder. And I'm sure you see that, too.
1: I do. And Elmo is another one that tends to work miracles. You just push his little foot and he starts singing and dancing for these kids, and they love it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Other uh, little popper ball toys, things like that, a kid may not be able to use the hammer Um, I have a flat ball toy that a lot of kids have just learned to do, and it does take – do you know what toy I'm talking about, Lauren, the flat ball? Is that one that that you know? I
1: don't have that one.
0: Okay. Okay. It's a toy. It's it's always over with the Nerf gun toys, but you push the ball and it goes completely flat. And I've had kids stand such low tone that they almost figure out, okay, I can't really get my hand to do it, but I'm going to throw my whole little body on this.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. but
0: you know that they understand cause and effect then. And you know that, gosh, he knows he's got to make it work somehow. And so we're really targeting cognition when we're doing that and we're able to see, Uh, again, where they're functioning from, from a cognitive perspective. So those kinds of little toys are ones that I always start with, even when we know that a kid or think that a kid may have a hard time doing it. Um, So we want to be sure that we're looking at that. And again, what we're assessing there is not so much their their motor use. I mean, yes, that's good. Yes, we want to look at that. But we're making sure that their play skills are moving along because that's how we get the most information about their cognition. And to talk, a kid needs to be moving along cognitively. So that's how we're going to really look at their cognition and their receptive language how they're working and how they're demonstrating that they understand those basic, uh, those basic toys, how to make those toys operate. Um, other things that, that I've used that create that visual interest that was when we wanted see how a kid can move or get them moving like this would be bubbles and balloons. And I think you could even lower functioning kids with with, um, lots of difficulty moving try to play with kinds of toys. Don't you think, Lauren?
1: I would agree. I love bubbles for kids any age.
0: Yeah. I think so, too. So those would be things that I would try. Once you get a handle on where they are receptively, that's then and only then can you move toward their expressive language skills. And, gosh, I just realized we only have four more minutes. And so that's a lot to try to wrap up in four minutes. But <laughs> my my um, caution to all therapists in this position working with these kinds of kids would be we want to see where their functioning motor skills. We want to be sure that we're looking at their social skill development and then their receptive language development well before we even start to think about their expressive development. And, again, as speech-language pathologists, sometimes we jump the gun on these kinds of kids and go straight to an expressive response. Let me just say we've already talked a little bit about um, the push to jump straight to pictures. Uh, you want to be sure that a child understands that representation, that the picture means what the real object is, and PEX, the picture exchange communication system, teaches that better than any other way that I've ever seen. And so I like to use that PEX methodology to even introduce uh, AAC, like the simple Big Mac switches, or, or, or even with pictures on an iPad. You want to be sure that you are using really big motivators, and that would be any toy, any food, or any activity that a child would like. You set the situation up so that they are requesting using their picture. And for a kid with motor skill issues, they're not going to be able to pick that picture up off the floor and hand it to an adult like we would want to see with Peck's but you may be able to attach that picture to the Big Mac switch or if you have it on your iPad and have them be able to touch it. But it's not just about the picture. It's about experiencing what comes after that, and that's what makes that activity communicative. And, again, a lot of therapists miss that. They'll go straight to using an app or straight to uh, pictures without really making it, uh, communicative. And I don't think you can really teach this or introduce it without also using some things that a child doesn't like. Because if a kid can't differentiate what I want versus what I don't want, you don't ever know that it's purposeful. And so you've got to be sure to set up um, those kinds of situations, too. And I think that I I could probably do a whole show on that alone, and that may be what I do next week with this because I'm getting the little sixty seconds, uh shout shout-out from the blog talk radio lady who's saying that it's time to wrap this show up, and we haven't really gotten to move on to talk about those kinds of things, and um, that may be what we talk about next week. But you've got to be sure that we're establishing all the foundational pieces first before we move to that talking piece. I hope that makes sense to everyone listening. Lauren, you did a great job of explaining that whole tone thing. (sighs) Lots of speech pathologists, again, understand it on a textbook level, but that first year or two or five or ten that they're working have a really hard time recognizing uh, signs and symptoms in children. So thank you for providing that great background today.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. And
0: I liked your practical suggestions, too, uh, with the things that we can do. And more than anything, I love that you said you've got to be able to talk to that other professional to get their expertise on what's really going on, because otherwise we can miss a whole, whole lot of information about a
1: kid. Absolutely, and it works the other way. The PT or the OT needs to be talking to the speech therapist about what level the child is working on so that everybody can be successful.
0: No kidding. And we will end with Lauren's words of wisdom for today. Thank you so much.